This is Fundraising Radio, and in this episode, our guest speaker is Peter Lee, founder of Embark Ventures. Embark Ventures focuses on deep tech and is located in Los Angeles. So in this episode, we're really focusing on fundraising for startups working with deep tech and steps that one should take if he or she decides to start a project in deep tech. But no worries, even if you're not working with deep tech, it will be still really interesting for you to listen. Now, Peter, let's kick off by you giving us some background on yourself and on Embark Ventures. Right. So uh, Embark Ventures is an early stage seed fund um, based in Los Angeles. We're focused on what we call deep tech. Um, essentially, we're looking for companies that have more defensible proprietary technology at its core. So we look at areas like robotics, manufacturing, automation, and autonomy, um, as well as some things on the healthcare, biotech side, and material science. Um, we're also open to other areas. You know, we've explored uh, BCI, which is like brain-computer interface. Uh, we've looked at a lot of things in the um, uh, sort of high compute um, computation area. Um, we've even done some semiconductor stuff. But um, anything that has typically, you know, very hardcore tech, often PhDs, patents, things like that. Um, our fund is a $45 million fund. Um, we invest early stage, so most of the companies we invest in are actually um, pre-revenue. Um, and so we're comfortable going early and we invest around the country. So we have a lot of companies in Southern California. We have companies in Boston and Canada Bay Area, Texas, um, areas like that. Um, I've been a VC for about 15 years. Um, my early background, I was an MIT uh, roboticist, so I did an undergrad and master's at MIT. Um, spent some time at some startups doing a lot of uh, R&D around uh, optics and ultrasound, as well as hardware design and manufacturing. Um, been part of two different startups, went to business school, uh, worked at McKinsey doing consulting. Um, and as I mentioned, I've been doing venture capital for about 15 years. Um, so that's sort of the quick background. Happy to go into more detail on anything you want. Right, definitely. We will definitely get into more detail. All right, uh, let's move on to the first question. Uh, I personally have no experience in deep tech whatsoever because it's I'm probably too stupid for that. But uh, <laughs> how do you how do you source your deals? Where do you find those deep tech projects? Yeah, so Southern California is actually an interesting um, uh, a region because people don't normally think of deep tech in Southern California. They think of you know. Boston with MIT and Harvard and the Bay Area with Stanford and Berkeley. But Southern California actually has a ton of great technology and companies. So when you think about JPL and Caltech, um, amazing research and technical development going on there. You have a lot of the traditional aerospace and defense industry, um, Northrop and, and Raytheon here, um, but also you know SpaceX um, and some of the newer you know, space tech companies. Um, and obviously the UC schools and the research they're doing. And then if you expand to um, Southern California, you have uh, uh, you know, Qualcomm in San Diego and you have um, UCSB uh, in Santa Barbara. And so um, a lot of great technology and uh, it covers the gamut of, of types of technology from robotics and manufacturing, like I mentioned before, and, and biotech, um, mobile, wireless, um, and, and so there, there's a lot of different arenas. Um, and then in terms of, um, specifically your question around deal flow, um, you know, a lot of this is just coming from, uh, you know, I'd say about half of our companies, the origins of the tech actually came out of university research. 
And so we develop, um, you know, relationships with the universities and, and knowledge that's spinning out. <clears throat> and the other half is really coming out of industry. And so a lot of SpaceX alums come out and people who've worked in other technology companies. Um, and so we get our deal flow from all over the you know, region. Um, and then, you know, just because there's not as many investors in Southern California who have the experience um, in hard tech, you know, I think our name hopefully has started to get around and we're getting referred to a lot of deals. Right. Yeah, that works. Uh, so because of the whole coronavirus, I promised myself not to get into this topic, but I can't just can't refrain. <laughs> Did your sphere suffer as well? Or are you right now just blooming because you're working with biotech, as you said? Did the coronavirus outbreak help you at all or did damage you? No, no. I mean, like, you know, we, we've done some stuff in biotech, but nothing that's, I would say, directly related or involved in, in sort of helping to, to solve uh, the, the, the COVID-19 outbreak. Um, I would say, you know, uh, you know, the first thing I did was go to all the portfolio companies and, you know, we're looking at companies, whether they have the right amount of cash, to last through this downturn. Um, and so overall, you know, I would feel pretty good about the, the state of funding for the companies. Um, but, you know, there's just, it's uncertain how long this is going to last. Um, but for us, you know, um, I, I, I would say it just sort of hurt us as much as a lot of people um, were not, you know, as, you know, focused um, as some, you know, biotech only funds um, really on like drug development and things right. like that. So you said that sometimes you invest as early as pre-revenue, which for me is really insane for a VC to invest pre-revenue. But in uh, yeah. deep tech, in my understanding, it's really, it takes a lot of time and effort to develop all those technologies. So even pre-revenue company might be worth like 10 millions versus regular pre-revenue 1 million uh, estimate. What's the average size of the check that you write? And what's the company valuation that you usually invest in? Yes, our average check size so far has been between half a million and a million in a first investment, um, but we're always co-investing. And so I would say the round size that we invest in is probably ranges about two million, you know, maybe four or five million is typical. Um, and so, you know, we are just part of the round. If it's on the lower end, uh, like two million on the round, we can leave those. Um, um, but when the round size is really bigger, um, we're usually just participating in the round. Um, and, and like you said, you know, it is somewhat daunting to invest pre-revenue. Um, I guess the trade-off is sometimes there's been years of technical development that's gone into the company. And so there is some asset value and certain um, benefits of, you know, some, you know, defensible pieces, but um, it does take more money. Um, probably 80% of our companies have a hardware component. And so mm -hmm. it's just more capital intensive than, than a pure software SaaS business to get off the ground. But hopefully there's also additional barriers to entry um, that, that provide, you know, sort of other areas of, of value. So here in deep tech, when someone's pitching to you, what are you usually focusing on? So what are you looking for? Are you looking for like some unique patents or voice are like five major things that you need to see in uh, the pitch deck to move on with this? Yeah, so, um, you know, ultimately we are just VC investors. So there's a level of, of um, diligence we do that any VC would do. So looking at the team and looking at the market, things like that. 
Um, the other layer as a deep tech investor that we do, maybe in addition to what a typical VC looks at, um, we definitely look for IP. And whether that comes in the form of, uh, and I, maybe I should say barriers to entry. And so that could come in the form of patents. It could come in the form of trade secrets where they might not patent something, but they have, you know, just deep uh, sort of uh, technical depth in an area um, where it's hard to replicate uh, the knowledge of what they've built. Um, often this comes in, in form of like chemistry and, and different materials where, um, you know, it, it, it's hard for someone to reverse engineer, you know, exactly what they built. And so oftentimes there's trade secrets. Um, but ultimately, we're just looking for some defensibility. And we know that, you know, ultimately nothing is really defensible. Right. And so our one of the criteria we use is, you know, if someone else heard about or saw a demo of what you're working on, you know, how fast would it? you know take them or how long would it take them to replicate what you're doing and you know if you take a, a software business someone could see what they're building it's like hey yeah i can stick a couple of engineers <laughs> and software developers on this and have you know something up and running maybe potentially in a couple of months you know we look at it more in the years like you know it, there's so much technical oh, depth um gone into it it would it would take you know a smart engineer in your field still you know maybe years to to replicate what you've done so that for us is more of the criteria versus just strictly number of patents or, or things like that. It really is how long do you have a head start? That's really interesting. Now I actually feel that my question of why deep tech manufacturing robotics versus regular consumer stuff, I think that question is irrelevant basically. But you know what? I'll still ask it. Why deep tech yeah, yeah. versus regular stuff that most investors do? Yeah. So um, prior to launching Embark, I was running a fund called Baroda Ventures and I was actually a generalist. And so I invested in software and consumer web and e-commerce uh, as well as tech. And so I've done sort of all different types of investing. For me, it was a combination of um, I had some strong back expertise um, in some deep tech areas. My, my partner, similarly, um, we're both actually PhD dropouts. And so we both have undergrad and master's degrees in very technical areas. We both started PhDs. We decided it wasn't our, our calling. And so we have a lot of appreciation for hard tech. And so we took, um, a combination of there was a huge advancement in where AI and robotics was going um, and the applications of you know, AI technology into many, many different industries. Um, and, and, and there's also, I guess I would say a lack of capital, especially in Southern California for companies that are looking for investors who understand deep tech. And so I think it was a combination of, we think it's a good timing in the market where technologies like this are really advancing. Hardware is becoming, you know, cheaper and easier. Um, but also we had a competitive advantage versus other funds down here that we had some real, you know, background expertise in it. Um, and so that's what led us to really focus, um, our efforts here. Got it. Got it. That's, I think SoCal is really missing this technical part because I guess of the Los Angeles and San Francisco being really movie cities, if I can say so, <laughs> but the question remains, uh, so in yep. the beginning of the interview, you said that Boston, is it Boston that you said is like the capital of tech, uh, deep tech? Yeah, I mean, a lot, a lot of it 
um, centers around universities. So when you think about what are the top Marian science universities, you know, people immediately think of MIT and Harvard, um, Stanford and Berkeley. And so you end up having these hubs um, in the Boston area as well as the Bay Area. Um, and those are natural areas where a lot of technology is coming out of these research institutions. Um, but, you know, they're great research institutions in different areas. So Carnegie Mellon is great at robotics. And so there's like a mini hub in, in Pittsburgh. It's just a small ecosystem. But Southern California, um, even though it's sort of dominated, you know, visibly by the entertainment sector, you know, when you have Caltech and JPL and uh, UCLA and USC, and then, you know, especially if you expand to San Diego with, uh, you know, Qualcomm, um, you actually have a lot of great technology and, you know, SpaceX. Um, it's just not as well known just because entertainment seems to dominate right. uh, media coverage. Um, but, but I would actually say we have very, very, um, you know, high quality, you know, rivaling, you know, MIT and, and, and Harvard in terms of some of the technology coming out of Southern California. That's, that's, that's great to hear. Um, so some of my speakers actually say that some startups when raising, they should actually move to San Francisco for a couple of months to close the round. Doesn't make sense for a deep tech company to move out from, I don't know, Texas or some small city to a bigger city like Boston or Los Angeles or San Francisco to raise money for their deep tech project? Yeah, it's interesting to say that. So that was actually one of the reasons we formed Embark. And so, you know, when we started Embark and we were thinking about it, um, we saw all this great technology coming out of universities, coming out of industry down here, and no one making investments in the area. And when we talked to the entrepreneurs, um, they always said, well, we go to the Bay Area. We don't even talk to L.A. investors because they don't <laughs> do this stuff. Um, and oftentimes when we go to the Bay Area, they tell us either, oh, you're a little bit too early. And so come back to us once you have revenue and customers. Or they say, hey, why don't you move up to the Bay Area? And so, but there's a lot of people who have lived in Southern California, you know, they bought houses, raised families, have kids, and they don't want to move up. And so that was actually one of the impetus for us saying, hey, we should start a fund and be one of the few groups willing to do hard tech in Southern California. Now, what I would say is, depending on the region of the, of the country, you know, things are easier given, you know, now that COVID-19 is, is pushing the envelopes of like, you know, video conferencing and remote mm -hmm. you know, discussions, you can start a company anywhere, but I think it comes down to a lot of recruiting. And so I think if you're in one of the larger cities that has a lot of engineers, you can actually build and recruit and, 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 and start a company in those areas. But if you're in the middle of, you know, nowhere and you just can't find the talent, then I think you do have to move to an area that has enough engineering talent to actually hire the right people you need. And so people do think of the Bay Area, obviously, Boston for hard tech. I think Southern California actually is coming up in terms of the number of engineers coming out that you can build a hard tech company here and stay here and have enough access to talent. Right. So you, you, you've said a lot of things about starting these deep tech companies that seem to be super extra expensive and it takes years to build the technology. So if someone who is uh, not poor, but not like super wealthy to afford bootstrapping all that by himself or herself, is there like any life hack for them to, to go over this monetary restrictions? Yeah, it, it is tough. And that's why I would say most of the companies we've invested in have either come out of university or 
someone out of industry. And so uh, in the university, obviously, you can raise research money and grant money and do your research there. Oftentimes, it's, you know, master's and PhD students, postdocs. Um, in industry, what it usually ends up being is, uh, you know, for example, you know, someone who's worked at SpaceX for a couple of years, maybe worked on some robotic and automation, you know, on the manufacturing side. They've developed some really, really deep expertise um, in their space or in their area for SpaceX. But um, maybe they're ready to move on to something else. And a lot of the know-how they they built can be applied to an area outside of rockets. Um, and so they've already built up a lot of the expertise. Um, now they need to raise capital for salaries and for equipment. Um, but depending on, you know, you know, they have, um, you know, some co-working spaces, some that actually focus on hardware where they have machine shops and things like that. Um, and so there, there are oftentimes uh, people able to at least bootstrap a little bit, um, but there is a point where with hardware, you do have to necessarily potentially buy much more expensive equipment. Right. Um, and that's where we feel like the biggest gap is. And that's why out of, I think we've made 17 investments at Embark right now. Um, all of them except one were pre-revenue. So it's not just we occasionally do pre-revenue. It is almost every time it's pre-revenue. So that is the gap in the market we feel like is the most um, apparent. Um, once you're into revenue, there's barrier funds that will invest all day long down here. But when you're pre-product, pre-revenue, there's not many people who make that bet. Um, and so that's the gap that we feel like we can fill um, uh, and that's needed the most. Got it. So we got a question from the audiences, from the audience. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I have only one here. All right. The question is from Kirill. He's asking, are there any successful companies in your portfolio who have uh, remote or highly distributed teams? So he would imagine that with hardware, it's harder to do remote. Yeah. So um, one, our fund is only three years old. So, you know, uh, it, it, we're still relatively early in the cycle. But as of now, um, yeah, if they're hardware based, the, the, the hardware team is, is co-located. Um, and I think that is very, very difficult. You know, software team, I think ideally you have them co-located, but it's not like I think there's ways around it. But yeah, hardware, yeah, I, I think it, it, it's, um, it's very, very difficult unless you can really piecemeal different areas of the hardware that maybe can just sort of plug into each other without much interaction. But as of now, you know, all the companies that we have that are hardware-based, um, those teams are all co-located. Understood. So yeah, that's, that's a good re response. I think it's true. Pretty much impossible to, to build a remote team in hardware. Um, so next question would be about students in uh, universities i had a guy who on my podcast who raised twenty one thousand dollars exclusively through grants so what should a person who is in university let's say a sophomore and he has a or he or she has a great idea about deep tech technology what's the first like three steps that they should take yeah so i mean if they're still in school I would, and, they, and at least for the near term, they might want to stay in school. I would really push them to find a professor, find a lab whose research aligns with their interests and see if they can leverage um, some of the research they're doing as well, especially the equipment and expertise to start working and building out, you know, prototypes and proving out, you know, whatever their idea is. You know, for example, let's say it's in the robotics area and someone wants to build a robot 
to do, you know, you know, some kind of task in some industrial area. Um, you know, there's, there's tons of robotics labs and lots of, you know, machine shops and equipment that students have access to. So I would probably start there and start to try to build some, you know, prototypes or early proof of concepts to prove out the area. Um, once you do that, I think it's much easier to start raising capital um, uh, because at least you have some evidence that, you know, something can work. And so for us, right. we, you know, what, when I say we do pre-revenue, it's true. We don't necessarily do just like, here's a PowerPoint and idea and we've done nothing. Like we don't want to touch that. And so we expect that there is, you know, maybe some prototyping going on. Um, uh, uh, there's some, you know, R&D work that's done, um, especially if it's very uh, hard science. Um, we, we prefer that a lot of the pure R&D risk has been solved. Really, now they're moving more toward engineering risk, uh, which is more uh, knowable. Um, and so, um, you know, if you're, if you're still trying to understand the physics behind, you know, what's going on, you should get grant money and research dollars. But once you understand the sort of phenomenon and, and how fundamentally the thing works, um, and you really just have to engineer it, engineer it and productize it, um, we're comfortable getting it at that stage. Right. Here, it seems like a reasonable question to ask if you're not in a good university like MIT or anything like that, and you still want to do something in deep tech, what should you do? Does it make sense to join some uh, university team who might be interested in doing something like that? Or should you just push it on your own? Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, you know, I would say, you know, start from anywhere, but you, know, you definitely find, depending on the types of type of area you're going into, um, uh, certain universities have access to what is really cutting edge, the equipment have is really advanced. And so oftentimes it's much easier um, you know, to, to find opportunities coming out of the top institutions. So as I mentioned, we're based in LA. We have like 17 companies. We actually have four in Boston, um, and they're all spin-outs of either MIT or Harvard, um, mm -hmm. just because there's so much really great tech coming out of there. Um, and so I, I think it would be very helpful um, if you're able to access you know, university research and equipment um, and teams that really, really have deep expertise, um, I think that, that's, that's, you know, you know not, not just important, it's, it's almost critical um, if you don't have that um, already. Got it, that, that works. Uh, so probably last two questions and then we'll wrap it up. So first question would be uh, founders who are early stage. So for example, they are starting to prototype their pre-early stage, pre-revenue, but have some sort of development, should they try to reach out to VCs or angel investors? Or maybe they should just try to reach out to professionals in this field? Um, I think you need to do all of the above, <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> especially <laughs> if you're in Southern California. You know, if you're in the Bay Area, they have so much capital that, um, and also it, it, they, they do angel investors. I mean, there's so many angel investors up there because there's so many big successful companies that have come out that their ecosystem is flush with capital. And so it's very common for entrepreneurs to be able to raise from both angels as well as early funds in the barrier. Now, when you get out of the barrier and you get into Boston or Southern California, where the, the capital ecosystem 
isn't as plentiful. Um, I think you need to do all of the above, you know, try to find smart angels mm-hmm. who appreciate what you're doing and like your area. Hopefully they're technical. Um, talk to seed funds like ourselves. Um, you know, there's a lot of starts we work with that in addition to raise capital from us, they also in parallel raise grant financing from, you know, uh, NSF or other great uh, places. So it's non-dilutive capital. And so it sort of helps to extend uh, the amount of capital they have and leverage that we have with non-dilutive financing. And so I think you have to be more creative and, you know, you, you the money tree, you know, where you can find it. Um, the only caveat is you know, with with angels who are not as like professional. I think you just have to be wary around how you structure the deal and make sure that you know it doesn't send you in the wrong direction um, uh, if if you're doing things that are not, uh, um, I guess, more mainstream in terms of how things are structured. Um, I think that'd be the only concern. Um, but if you, if you're working with an angel who's pretty sophisticated. Or you have a good lawyer who can really guide you in terms of what is reasonable setup and what are the rights that are okay and the valuation, then I think it's fine. Got it. So there, there's another question from the audience. He's asking, how is the, mm-hmm. uh, how is the feedback loop between you and the company differ from non-deep tech companies? Yeah, I mean, like when I was investing in software SaaS, the seed round usually meant you already had a product in the market. Maybe you had some early, early customer use, some small amount of revenue, um, and you're building. Uh, seed stage company in the deep tech side means, you know, you are still building products and you have no customer revenue. And so, you know, our engagement, you know, is, I guess, more heavily on um, uh, product uh, as well as really trying to figure out who the right customer is, go to market, um, and what are the right features to build. Um, and so it's just, you know, one stage or stage earlier, um, you know, than a software company. And so, you know, for us, even though it was very technical it was many, many years ago, so I don't try to meddle, you know, what the engineers are doing, mm. but hopefully I have enough perspective to maybe ask the tough questions. And to question, you know, why are you using this approach versus that approach? Um, you know, I'm not going to be the one building it for them. Um, but I, I do think there are maybe lessons to be learned and questions, you know, around like, um, you know, what, what, what approach scales and what's the capital uh, required to go down this route versus that route. And so there are things like that that I can sort of probe them on. But I think my value may be more helpful in guiding, you know, how does the the, the market and the customer notify what features you're going to build, which then notifies the engineers exactly what they need to be working on. Um, and I think that is, you know, where I probably push the companies most in that first year or so after financing. That's, that's a good answer to a good question. We got a couple of good questions from the audience today. I'm, I'm, I'm happy. So last so, question for me, it's going to be about pre-selling. So for me personally, I work for a venture studio and for us, it's really important. We're pushing this idea of selling before building in deep tech. Of course, it's impossible, but is it possible to make some pre-sales or anything like that before actually releasing a prototype? And does it help to raise money if you have some sort of pre-sales? 
Uh, yeah, it's, it's definitely possible. Um, you know, these are definitely sort of uh, softer commitments. You know, you know, I, I don't think you're going to get anyone to sort of guarantee they're going to buy. Um, but we've definitely seen people say, hey, you know, we have a prototype. We can actually probably do some basic demo for you so you understand exactly how it works and what we're doing. Mm-hmm. We just need to make it more robust so it's ready for customer deployment. Mm-hmm. And so at that point, I think you can have a lot of customer discussions and say, hey, assuming you know, we take this prototype to something more commercializable, you know, are you, would you be ready to buy? And I think um, this is where you can get, you know, these LOIs. So letter of intent, it's non-binding, but it shows that, hey, you've built something that we're interested in. And if you can deliver, you know, what you promise, we, we have the need. And that's really what you're trying to, to gather is, you know, do you have the right product that really fits a need they have that they can't maybe have a solution somewhere else? Um, and so I think that is very valuable because, you know, again, it's not revenue yet, but if you go to a financer and you say, Hey, talk to this customer, they know what we're building. They have this need. Mm-hmm. And it's pretty clear that if we can deliver what they want, they'll buy, right? You know, it's not, it's not necessarily as solid, but it's pretty close. And so it's definitely very valuable. You can do that. Right. That makes complete sense. All right. Uh, I think to wrap this session up, I'm just going to say that if you're trying to build something in deep tech, just please have a good GPA and try to get into a good university. It's going to make your life easier. And second, whatever you're doing, try to make pre-sales, yeah. try to talk to your customers, damn it, see if there's a need in what you're building. All right. Thanks a lot, Peter, for coming out, for sharing your experience. I think there is a lot of useful information here. Everything is straight to the point, just like I like it. So yeah, Um, thanks. Have a a good Friday. Stay safe. Bye-bye. Okay, you too. All right, bye-bye. You really thought it's the end of the episode? Nope, not yet. In these uncertain times, when a weird virus is spinning out of control, and investors are trying to figure out where to put their money not to lose it all, I have an answer. Invest in human capital. I will be among the first 10 people to participate in something called Human IPO, so shortly about how it works. You can buy futures on my time now when it costs just $100 per hour, and when I become Mark Zuckerberg 2.0 and my time is worth $1,000 per hour, you can sell it or redeem it, either making 10x return or bringing me to your firm as an advisor or speaker for a few hours. My offering is not live yet, so now you can only subscribe to my updates. But please do so and become the first one to buy my time when my offering goes live. To sum it up, in dark days, buy time, not toilet paper, and your money won't be flushed into the toilet. I'll leave a link to my profile on Human IPO in the description of this episode. And thanks again for listening to Fundraising Radio.